This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at Kevin Kautzman and at Brad Kelly. back again with another episode of the greatest podcast by two writers dissecting the dark side of artists and creatives on the internet. What's the name of that podcast, Fred? Art of Darkness. That, that is it. That is it. And you are tuned in and I'm really excited. We just did the uh, Tennessee Williams episode and that means it's your turn, Brad, to That's take right. us down the primrose path that's right. Uh, it's a fast turnaround, man, and uh-huh. that's that's cool. That's good. Um, I am uh, I'm ready to go, man. I've got uh, I've got the incense burning. Um, uh, shuffling some tarot cards. I mm-hmm. smudged the room and all of that, all right. so I'm ready all to right. go. Well, let me uh, let me uh, spin up my theremin here. And, yes, uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, we do need. I should have got a fog machine. I'm mean, running out on video, but you know, we should have got a fog machine in. Should here. there be some wrapping under the table? Maybe. Yeah, here, a little here bit, yeah. in the theater of the the mind. Ready? Yeah. Oh my God! What is that? <laughs> it's the ghosts of podcasts past. All the bad podcast episodes you've ever made. <laughs> come, we'll come back. You'll have the, to relive them. That's a, that's a good right. little good little weird fiction horror story. You thought uh, you had pressed record. <laughs> Your biggest get guest ever. You <laughs> thought you pressed record. Right. Yeah. So Joe yeah, we're Rogan, about- is that you? <laughs> knock, knock five <laughs> times. All right, go on. So, yeah. So, today we're going to talk about uh, Pamela... Coleman Smith and uh, Kevin, uh, as our as we usually do, I'm going to ask the question. Kevin, what do you know about Pamela Coleman Smith? Almost nothing. Oh, I know yes. what you have told me, okay. which is that she is somehow related to the tarot, mm-hmm. and you shared on the Art of Dark Pod Twitter account mm-hmm. an image of her earlier mm-hmm. today. Looking rather exotic, I suppose, is a word. Yeah, we'll get to that, too. Relaxed, looking chill. Yeah. That is all I know. And then her name, rather a waspy-sounding name that I don't know. Yeah. Interestingly, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, um, Pamela Coleman-Smith, for people who are uh, even somewhat tarot interested, will at least be familiar with her art. She is... Um, the illustrator of uh, what was used to be called the Rider Waite tarot deck and, and now is typically called, the, should, and in my opinion, should be called the Rider Waite Smith deck. Um, so she, she illustrated all of those cards. And what's important about that is it's, it's become, uh, there are many, many, many tarot decks. Aleister Crowley famously was responsible for a tarot deck and there, there are older tarot decks. Um, 
this has become probably the most popular. This is the Coca-Cola of tarot decks, and I do not mean that derogatorily. Um, it's influenced many that have come behind it, many, you know, kitty cat tarot deck is based is sort of based on it right from that mm -hmm. to, to everything else so it's been hugely influential in the tarot world um though of course there's value to to, to many of uh, many different styles but right um, so for people who are following along and maybe don't know the tarot this is the deck you think of when you think of the tarot yeah probably yeah. if you've got a reading somewhere this is probably it if your friend has a deck they probably have this deck um most likely it is it is by far and away you know i don't i haven't looked at the tarot bestseller list recently but she's probably she's probably she's the pink floyd dark side of the moon of the tarot uh -huh, bestseller uh -huh. list right oh i or really michael got jackson vinyl. thriller yeah yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah something like that so um i i didn't know a ton about her either um until digging into this i just kind of knew that i wanted to do it and so um she's fascinating human being one thing i think maybe this is a first on art of darkness the darkness here We've had drug addicts and depressives. We've had um, uh, people who are sex were, addicts. Sex addicts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Workaholics. Mm -hmm. All of these kinds of things. I think this might be our first episode where the darkness is primarily the dark arts. Okay. So, uh. <laughs> so, so we'll we'll we'll, we'll kind of see where this goes. So, uh, just scrolling up to my notes here. So, Pamela Coleman Smith. She's born in 1878. Um, dies in, I'm just going to give it away. She dies in September of 1951, right? So she lives to a pretty good, pretty decent age. Um, she's, as we said, she's the, the most well-known as the artist behind the Rider-Waite-Smith tarot deck. Um, but she was involved in many, 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 many different artistic projects uh, of, all, of all sorts. Um, and so we're going to kind of get into that. Um, so first, we want to place ourselves a little bit in time because her time, the time of her life is very important. So 1878, um, this is just four years before Virginia Woolf, she's born. So, so it kind of places her a little bit in that time. And she dies not that long after World War II. So this is kind of the time, the time frame that we're dealing with. That and is, that, if I may, that is just quite a time period to live through. I mean, yes. I think about people who were born, let's say, in the 50s and, and who now are, are beginning to, to pass away. Mm -hmm. A heck of a change from the 50s to, oh my gosh, yeah. uh, to now with the internet and everything. And yet for this group of people, you're talking about radio, you're talking yeah. about film, mm -hmm. uh, you're talking about living to see television takeover, right. Right. living through World War I, through World War II. What a, right. what a span of time. Yeah, yeah, it's mm -hmm. interesting. To, that's a good point. It's interesting to think about Pamela Coleman Smith in her later days flip, flipping on the telly. <laughs> it's like, it's, and she probably did at some point, right? So, um, yeah. So, and another thing that's going to be important in, in her life is um, the. Uh, I'm going to mispronounce this, but it's it's a term that I've come to love. Uh, fin de siècle period, right? The mm -hmm. end of the century period, right? Mm -hmm. There's this, there's this, as before really the modernist movement, we're still dealing with the, the, um, the afterglow of romanticism a little bit. And there's this period of intensive spiritual interest. Um, people are looking outside of traditional religions and they're finding spiritualism with a capital S and that was big in America, but also big in Europe. They're finding um, Theosophy with Madame Blavatsky. 
um, who died in 1891, but but her sort of her sort of influence lived on. Uh, Gurdjieff was born in 1866, right? So this is a, this is a thing. Even when these schools aren't necessarily directly related to each other, there's something going on, right? With these various like alternative. It was a very woo-woo time. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You had the American Civil War. Mm-hmm. after which warfare changed right mm-hmm. and getting getting out of the civil war you got into machine guns and yeah. things were really developing and yeah. uh the people who were preparing to fight world war 1 were looking back to the american civil war what are we yeah. going to uh, what are we going to see death was very mm-hmm. near and immediate mm-hmm. uh the world was was more agrarian uh, sure. than, yeah. than today, much mm-hmm. more common to live in the country than to live in a city, though, of course, yeah. people did live in cities, but death yeah. was nearer. And yet, if I may, you mm-hmm. had the the dawning of modernity. And oh, in yes. Europe, you had trains and the world was opening up and women were becoming, uh, mm-hmm. we were achieving suffrage and all the rest. So you right. have this these colliding realities all happening at once. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, that flux is amazing. And, and, and you, you've got to think that these spiritualist movements had were a reaction a reaction to that in some degree um <clears throat> the industrial revolution i always think of too like at this time i mean we're still living in the industrial revolution from a from a, th- a three thousand or 30,000 foot view, we're still living in the Industrial Revolution, but this time it was like filthy, right? It was the Dickens era. It's soot and it's, you know, there's no regulation. London fog was yeah. just the exhaust from all of the factories yeah, and all the right, rest of what, right, the burning right. coal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's got to be a quasi-apocalyptic sort of sense to it if you're, if you know, you're in a major sure. city. Sure, and yeah. they were right, of course, because yeah. she was born in the 80s, 1880s. 1878. 78, so yeah. by the time she was a young adult, she was in her 30s, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would that put? Yeah, World War One kicks World off. War that I, was an 30s. apocalypse. Anybody for the West, it was an apocalypse. Yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. So, yeah, so so this is kind of her time frame. Now she's born. Um, I mean, get some basics out here. She's born in London, um, Pimlico, which doesn't mean much to me, but might mean something to to people who have London uh, London ties. Um, her father. Now she's got this really interesting family lineage, right? Um, her father was Charles Edward Smith, who was the son of. Cyrus P. Smith, who was the first mayor of Brooklyn. Hmm. Okay, so she's in this interesting, right? She's, so um, her mother was named Corinne Coleman, who is known as among the greatest drawing room actresses of the borough, which I don't even really, apparently you'd have in your drawing room, you would have little plays and storytelling events. Right? Pimlico is right off Westminster and Belgravia. And okay. just south of Buckingham Palace. Oh, okay. So it's very central, very okay. posh, okay. right on the river. Okay, mm-hmm. okay, cool. So that's that's where she was. She was born. This drawing so, room actor. Yes, but her parents were Americans, right? Ah, and they were over there for business or something like this. Um, mm. Her parent, her parents are American. Um, her uh, her uncle was Samuel Col- Coleman, who. Um, it was a f- pretty famous painter. He actually has a painting that's in the Smithsonian now, which is actually kind of a gorgeous painting called Storm King on the Hudson. But anyway, there's some talents in oh, the DNA. Uh, Storm King State Park is a in park New in New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's Junior South Barnes of uh, around there. Actually, yeah, of uh, the Army. What is it? Uh, West Point. 
Yeah, yeah, I think it's yeah. right around that area. That area. Yeah. yeah. So they're steeped in America, right? Her 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 grandfather's first mayor of Brooklyn. Her her hmm. her, her uncle is sort of a a, a semi famous, you know, maybe not the most famous, but a f- pretty famous American painter. Um, uh, uh, and then there was uh, and and her her grandfather on her her mother's side was uh, also named Samuel Coleman, was a really well known bookseller and publisher. He is credited with publishing the first illustrated volume of American verse. So she was born into a in. family of blue checks. She was. Yeah, she's sure. all of her links on Wikipedia <laughs> yeah, are yeah. blue. Her parents yeah, are yeah. blue links on Wikipedia. Yes, and also her grandmother on her on her mother's side was a well known. Um, uh, well-known author of children's books for the time. Wow, a talented family. Yeah, yeah, for wow. sure. For she sure. must and, have been a terrible disappointment to them. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, and yeah, <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> I don't I know. Love that. You tell I me. Love that. Um, so uh, her parents were so there was money, but not a ton of money, right? It, it's we're talking. We're not talking the the point uh, one percent, but maybe we're talking the five percent or the ten percent or something like that. They're not. Uh, they're they're not uh, destitute by any means, and they're not Jeff Bezos, but someplace in between. So, which I guess we all are. Uh, <laughs> her parents were active. Here's another little little thing in the mix um, that I think is relevant. Um, her parents were active Swedenborgians. I'm probably not oh, saying that right. Yes. Okay. okay. Interesting. Now, I, okay. I don't know a ton about this. It's sort of a, a, a offshoot of Protestantism in some way. Um, well, Swedenborg was a a mystic, a right. very hardcore mystic. He would okay. be a good episode to do. Sometime. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Maybe we do have to get there. So she starts mm-hmm. out in that environment, and they're they're active. They 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 host events at their home and things like this. Right? Swedenborg was the the type of fellow who, uh, if I'm not mistaken, really claimed to have had prophetic visions that he yes. wrote down. He went and he, and he saw God. Right. I did yeah. come across that. What I was looking for was something that was a differentiating sort of doctrine and it didn't really there wasn't much in there that would have split it off of uh, you know lutheranism or something mm-hmm. and i'm mm-hmm. sure people would disagree about that um uh but anyway it's kind of there there are mm-hmm. she's born into this sort of alternative religion environment um now at 10 years old this is where things get weird not weird but things get a little murky biographically because she isn't written about the way that maybe some of the other people we've done so far have been written about there's really one biography that came out that I'm dealing with which is called uh Pamela Coleman Smith the untold story which is great and has a lot of her art in it which was really cool to go through and then there's a more recent biography that came out and uh just came out this year actually and uh I might actually try to get the woman who wrote one of the the woman who wrote that book on the podcast because I had some Twitter interactions with her. Great, yeah. So come um, on, yeah. So so now at ten years old, her father um, takes a job with the Jamaican Railroad. This is like the third or fourth person on the show that's had like a parent or somebody working for the, a railroad in a foreign country. Apparently this was like, a, this must have been a common thing back well, in the Well, I day. did mention the railroads earlier and they were a big deal because yes. of course this is before the automobile yes. and yeah. this is how people got around. Yeah. This is how goods yeah. got around. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A yeah, lot absolutely. of history can, could be mined out of looking at where the trains were going. For sure, for sure. So yeah. she spent a lot of time in her youth starting at age 10 in Jamaica. Um, now here's where things get a little, get a little interesting. So, there are people now who claim 
Pamela Coleman Smith is a woman of color in some fashion. Now, her parents, from everything that I can tell, her parents are basically um, what we would call white people, as far as I can tell. And then there were people who claimed that she must have been Jamaican because she, Jamaica actually features pretty big in her work later. But she never went to Jamaica until she was 10 years old. So somewhere, and, and this is the thing, it's not just off of looking at one photo. To me, looking at a photo, she might be in some mean, by some means biracial or something, if I were to just glance at her photo. Yeah, interesting. Um, hmm. But uh, she would, at the, in her life, she would be called these things. So when she, um, she was alternatively called by different people, she was called Japanese, she was called Chinese. She was called black. Um, uh, W.B. Yates's father uh, ref- referred to her as some sort of primitive American. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Oh, no. <laughs> um, uh, so I don't know where this comes from, what, you know, her lineage, what it is, who, you know, the, yeah, the, wow. the, the, the mailman, you know, do oh, they have a black right. milkman? I have no yeah. idea, right? Yeah. But there's, there's something in there. And people picked up on this, not only because of how she looked, but because of her personality and her style of interacting with the world. Hmm. Okay, so, um, uh, so, oh, and then, and then one other thing is we're kind of like encapsulating her identity. It's most likely that she um, was a lesbian. She had no, no romantic male relationships. She had one of these situations where she had a, a woman who was her housekeeper or her roommate or something like that, um, particularly a woman named Nora Lake who she would live with for about 20 years. So just putting that out there, I don't really, these distinctions aren't that important to me. However, I do think it has something, I think as we see going through her life, how self-possessed she was, how confident she was, how much swagger she had, that it, the fact that she may have been a woman of color at the time, and she was a lesbian, most likely, that there's, there's something audacious just about how she rolled. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm looking at pictures of her right now, yeah. and clearly she had a bohemian yeah. style and, yeah. a, and a sense of herself. Sure, uh, very cool, sure. very for fun. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. so she's in. Um, so she's in Jamaica, starting at the age of ten. She's bouncing back and forth between the United States, and there might have been a couple trips to England. I am not going to be able to keep track of this because for a woman living in the steamship age, she was all over the place. <laughs> Okay, they so, they must have had some they had oh, they money did. then yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it eventually kind of runs out but there was okay. definitely money yeah okay. so um so in 1896 show so she's what she's 18 years old she starts getting really interested in the theater she's in Jamaica at this time her mother dies when she's 15 and her father and her are very close when her mother dies she kind of takes over running the household um and uh she gets starts getting obsessed with the theater. She's reading everything she can about the theater, but she's in Jamaica. So it's all, you know, she's getting magazines that tell you what happened six months ago in the theater. And there's no formal theater in Jamaica. So what Pamela Coleman Smith does because she's so self-possessed and she's so creative, she starts doing what is called miniature theater. She has all these little miniature figures that she paints, she creates and paints up to 300 of them. She creates little stage designs. She writes a story and she will put on a little play. And now when you're 16 or 18 years old, that sounds like a, you know, a charming kind of cool thing to do. But 
when she gets to New York in 1896, her dad sends her to Pratt. She puts on a show of this and she makes $95 in three shows, which is $3,000 at the time. She's like 18 years old, right? People loved this thing. She'd written this like convoluted kind of crazy play about fictionalized version of the life of the governor of Jamaica or something like that. Just kind of audacious and kind of awesome. She's at Pratt, she's painting, she gets a little bit of success, not anything broad very early, but you know, write-ups in little magazines and winning a competition here and there and that kind of thing. So, so right out the gate, she's, she's, she's already in this sort of multimedia realm. She's making these figures, she's writing a story, she's putting on the play and doing all the voices. She's painting, you know, she's painting pictures good enough to be very competitive at a very good art school for the time, right? So, um, now, I just I love this image of her playing with these little figurines, right? right? right. What what yeah. pops into my mind is it's it's a, maybe a, a more feminine version of kind of like Warhammer. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, that really is all that the, these these boys are doing in their oh, parents' yeah. basements. Yeah. It's they're like doing, a kind of weird theater, right? Theater. And they're yeah, rolling yeah. the dice, and yeah, for, yeah, bizarre. For sure, for yeah, sure. What so a world! She's, she's doing this kind of thing, and she's she's um, she's uh, getting better and better at her art, and so. Um, she, I got a little thing I want to read. This is very early on. I think she was, uh, I guess this would have been around when she was 20 or so. She gets a little write up in this magazine called Brush and Pencil. Um, uh, yeah, this was actually in 1900. So she was 22. And we're going to get to some other stuff that was going on in this period for her, but I like this. Um, so this was in Brush and Pencil, a magazine at the time. Uh, even in this day of unusual movements in art, it is not an ordinary thing to find one so ab absolutely untrammeled by tradition of the schools, so unhampered by the whisperings of convention and art, so undeterred by any dictates of precedent from venturing further afield, and one so masterfully conquering color and tactfully, tactfully forcing allegiance, an allegiance of it to purpose which has come whole-souled as Pamela Coleman Smith, whose work stands unique in America and certainly as unique everywhere. Now, I would have killed to get a write-up like that when I was 22 yeah. Oh my years God, old, it's, it's right? going to go right to your head. Yeah, absolutely, right? Yeah. You, you know, not only, like, it's one thing that somebody's like, oh, you're super talented. Another thing to be like, you are unique in the country. Like, what? <laughs> so, so that's where she's at. Now, I want to talk a little bit of what her art is actually like, because I'm not, we don't have any visuals here. If you've seen the tarot cards, the Rider-Waite-Smith tarot deck, that's kind of the, the, the style typical of what she was doing. Um, she was very influenced by um, uh, the arts and crafts movement, which I don't know if you know much about the arts and crafts. I movement. do. The house yeah. that we live in is an arts and crafts okay. house. And this okay. is my, my stepfather is obsessed with this stuff. There's a very particular way you're supposed to have uh, the house decorated. We're not mm -hmm. cleaving to it here, right. Uh, right. but it's a very particular style, a very particular thing. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I guess that yeah. doesn't surprise me. Yeah, so for her, like for her, part of it was the DIY aspect, which mm -hmm. I think the arts and crafts ended up being maybe a little bit of a pushback on the Industrial Revolution, yep. right? It's mm -hmm. and and for her, it it meant an interest in in a little bit of like uh, revisionist medievalism too, right? Like being interested in that aesthetic. Um, uh, she. So she's influenced by that. She's influenced clearly just by looking at what she does. She's influenced by William Blake. There's mm -hmm. also a little bit of a Japanese line to her work. Those sort of famous like um, 
you know, the, the tidal wave by, I can't remember. Yeah, sure. I know what you're talking about. That, those mm-hmm. kinds mm-hmm. of that, that sort of genre is definitely influent, influential on her. So we're not talking about like Caravaggio or Rembrandt, these deeply, deeply rendered oil paintings that take forever. It's a little bit lower resolution than that, a little bit more fanciful. You know, there's fairies in her early stuff and that sort of thing. So that's kind of just her realm. So I want to kind of paint that picture because she is, um, we're going to, well, let me just talk about this period for her. There is a three year period right around 1900 where her level of productivity to me is kind of astonishing. Okay. So um, in, th- in three year period, she has, um, she makes an alphabet, a Shakespeare alphabet for children. So each page is A is for whatever. And she has an illustration. She does multiple illustrations for Collier's Weekly. She has a cover for Book Buyer magazine. And a, she has a whole Christmas card deal with this art dealer, William Macbeth. She does a calendar of Shakespeare's heroines. She does an illustrated book of Jamaican folklore, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, And she writes that as well. She illustrates it and writes it. She does two other illustrated booklets, Golden Vanity, which I think is maybe her best illustrations, um, and uh, something of the green bed or something. She does illustrations for a play called Trelawney of the Wells. She does illustrations for this guy, uh, Seamus McManus's collection of Irish folktales and a couple of other things. So this is all in this like three year period where she's, she's uh, basically, she didn't finish at Pratt, but she's like college aged at this point. She's like 22, 23, 24, right in there. Right in there. But they grew up faster back then. That's true. You're a grown person. You're in New York. You're on your, yeah, you're on your own. Yeah. 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 So, um, so her big thing, um, actually I was saying 22, 23, 24 It's actually a little bit earlier than this because the one big item in there that stands out to me, just looking at all this work is this thing she did called a Nancy stories. And Nancy stories was an illustrated book of Jamaican folklore. She was super into folklore, um, which oh, you, you got a, a Nancy like the spider. Yes. A, a non, yes. Okay. A non. Yeah. Yeah. Spider. So she spelled mm-hmm. it. She yep. spelled it A N N A N C Y, but the typical spelling is A N A N S I. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So he's this Jamaican folklore character who's a spider, but can also sometimes transform into a human being. And so this comes out in 1896, and this is, I think. The reviews for it were amazing, first of all. And the next, I think this is where we start to get, this is the first product she puts out where you really start to get an idea of like how she looks at the world. So I'm going to read a little, <clears throat> a read a little thing from this uh, Stuart Kaplan. Um, there's actually like four people who wrote this book. I think this part is by Mary Kay Greer. Um, <clears throat> quote, her depictions are the first known published drawings of Ananzi, a traditional African folk tale character who is also one of the most important characters in Caribbean folklore. The trickster figure can assume the form of both a man and a spider. Pamela calls this, this figure Anansi and highlights his wily tricks, a pronounced sense of humor, and a deliberate refusal to follow established rules. Unlike other contemporary, contemporaneous accounts, Pamela's Anansi is not as aggressive and is often bested by other animals. This can be seen in the first story of the collection. Um, so I have another thing. Oh, so, and here's, here are some responses to it. Um, the New York Herald wrote about it. The Pittsburgh Daily Post wrote about it. And in general, you can summarize the, the reception of it like this. An effusive article about Pamela in the collection, which was syndicated in several newspapers across the country, noted with, that 
with the most astonishing invention, imagination, and humor, she has pictured a series of strange, alluring little people who cannot fin- fail to win the childish heart and at the same time delight appreciative grown folks. Right? So this is just a, a sort of a beloved object for people. And Pixar wrote, of the day. Yeah, yeah, for real. And so one thing that was notable about it was she wrote it in Jamaican Pigeon. Ah, wow. So she and the publishers tried to talk her out of it. And she was like, no, this is how this, these, this is how these stories are told. Is and like she this. has artistic integrity. Incredible. Yes. Wow. Yeah, right. Yeah, amazing. Right. So he, yeah, it's pretty cool. And she's eight, 1896. I mean, she's 20. She's not even 20 years old yet. She's, she's done this, right? Wow. So, yeah. So impressive impresses me right off the bat. Like, even if you're not into Jamaican folklore, and that's fine. But just the, 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 you know what I mean? Sure. The audacity of it, the, yeah. the, the singular sort of invention, the, the ability to work across multiple disciplines and all of that. So <clears throat> folklore is kind of a big deal to her. Um, she works on this Seamus McManus tales of Irish folk- folklore. I'm interested. I've always been interested in the cross, uh, cross pollination of African diaspora culture and Irish diaspora culture. Just like, you know times where perhaps these two groups were working in the same fields and all of that. I've just always Yeah, there's that, that moment in Titanic where they're doing a jig and all of it. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And they, they mentioned in, in Gangs of New York yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, 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 kind there's of, something there. Yeah. 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 Um, so, okay. So she's got, you know, by 1899, she's published this. She's published. Uh, they've published this collection of Irish folk tales with her illustrations in it. She's 22 years old. Um, this is when she starts to. Uh, her father dies around this time. Now, her father was her and her were super close. Whenever right. she was traveling as a young lady, she was with her dad, and her dad was able to like set up these meetings with her. And I don't know if he set them up. I guess it's not clear, but he definitely was there and was interested in making them productive. Like he was trying to set up Pamela Coleman's. Almost well, like acting like an agent or a manager. A, li- a little yeah. bit, yeah. He helped her get. Apparently, it's as far as I can tell, he helped her get this deal with the Irish folk stories. He helped her meet uh, W.B. Yeats's father. She would later meet W.B. Yeats. Um, there were some other folks that kind of helped her get publishing deals and all of that kind of thing. Um, after Anansi, she starts getting, you know, a whole bunch of attention. She starts to get a bunch of different op- opportunities. Um, her father dies in 1899, so she moves to London more or less permanently. She's going to be in England basically the rest of her life, kind of going back and forth. Um, she gets a, a gig doing stage design. Um, All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, one of us, one of she us. Was, she was into the theater for sure. Now she wasn't an actress. She didn't write many, many more plays beyond her, um, her, uh, the miniature theater thing. Uh, but she was always sort of around the theater, and we'll get into that in a second. Um, but what's Coming, becoming obvious in her work is she's very interested, even with the Nancy stories and, and beyond that, she was very interested in doing like small runs of like hand printed, hand colored stuff. Like she it seemed like she would prefer to, to put out 500 expensive versions of something that she had touched every single one of them rather than like mass production. She did the mass production for money. Like she would, she would, she would do prints and, you know, she wasn't, she wasn't, uh, she had integrity, but she also like wasn't shy about trying to make a buck either. You know, she kind of was able to kind of balance. Yeah. London is, uh, it's not a cheap town. 
Right. Yeah, you gotta you gotta pay rent. <laughs> it's right. You gotta make rent, man. Yeah. And, and yeah. Crowley is around in this time too, so we're sort of in the same. Yeah. yeah, yeah and I don't know you. exactly his years, but yeah, I I am sure that they cross paths because what we're gonna find out in here in a second is that she basically met everybody. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So so she gets um she gets these theater gigs and she sort of gets uh, gets pulled into the theater world a little bit. And she meets a man, Henry Irving, who was a, a prominent actor, but also the owner of the Lyceum Theater, which maybe you've heard of or know. Probably sure, I'm I pretty do. sure. I'm going to look it up. But yeah, yeah, I think I know the one. Yeah, so this about. was a pretty famous, maybe even the most famous um, theater in London at the, uh, at the turn of the century. Um, they would put on a lot of Shakespeare, but, but also a lot of, you know, a lot of other stuff. And then, and then also a lot of original theater. Um, oh yeah, that's, yeah, that's right in the middle of everything. Okay. Yeah. yeah so she, yeah. yeah, yeah. So she, she becomes really good friends with Henry Irving. Um, and, uh, through him oh. becomes really good friends with Ellen Terry, who Ellen Terry is apparently at this time is like the most famous actress in Europe. And, and even though she's 30 years older than Pamela, they become fast friends Ellen Terry gives Pamela her nickname, which she would sign. She would sign on letters for years of Pixie. So Pamela Coleman Smith was the original manic Pixie dream girl, right? <laughs> I love it. She's yeah. she's amazing. This is amazing. Now this, this is, is the art of dark podcast. So there has to be some darkness here uh, wow. soon. But this is great. She's I'm yeah. I'm a fan now uh, already. Yeah. yeah, she's killing it. So, yeah, she's killing the game. Yeah. Yeah, so she's so she's doing illustrations for for um for like promotional material, posters, brochures, and that sort of thing for the Lyceum Theater. Also, like Christmas time comes around, she's 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 like busy as a as a beaver or a bee. I don't know what what is it? Bee? Yeah, busy as a beaver. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. So she's because she's got to get out these Christmas cards that she's got to deal for. She's got to. She's get a prints, working she's artist. Yeah. She's so, over here. Yeah. Yeah. Grinding. Mm-hmm. Right, right. It's a mm-hmm. it's a job, and she's she's. I don't know if she's getting rich off of it. But she's ma- she's making money off of it. Um, her cousin is a guy named William Gillette, and William Gillette is known as uh, probably his claim to fame. Um, though I do, I read that he retired in a castle in Connecticut. Is so. the father of the razor blade? <laughs> I thought so. That's what I thought too. I was like, is this, is this what we're going to be dealing with? However, he is. Um, he is his claim to fame. He was the first. Um, person to portray Sherlock Holmes on stage. Ah, okay. So now go back in your memory. Forget Benedict Cumberbatch. Forget um, uh, Robert Downey Jr. Give me what does Sherlock Holmes look like? Like what's his what's his style? Tall. Okay. Thin. Okay. Bowler he, hat. Mm, no. Deer, deer deer stalker hat. Oh right, of course. Right. Yeah, no right right. The bowling hat would be or the bowler hat would be the uh, would be Watson. Yeah, 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 yeah. The yeah. pipe, the pipe. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. So okay. apparently, apparently, the first image that ever showed up of Sherlock Holmes in wearing that was a promotion for William Gillette starring as Sherlock Holmes, mm. and then that got tagged yes. on. Yes, exactly. Okay. And Pamela right. Coleman Smith drew illustrated that. Okay, all so right. It's not clear if Pamela Coleman Smith came up with this getup. It's not apparently clearly defined in the early Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, but so it's very possible that she basically came up with what Sherlock Holmes looks like, which is a very sort of cool. random kind that of thing, That is a right? fun, right. But that, this is the, the, the Sherlock Holmes fandom. Mm-hmm. That is the kind of factoid 
yeah, that right. they would love. I <laughs> yeah, guarantee it. That's right. That's yeah. right. So, so yeah. So it's not clear. You know, she may have made up some of it. Maybe William Gillette made up some of it. Maybe he had a pipe sitting around and he thought it would it would be cool to smoke. Whatever. But that's just kind of an interesting thing. Another person she meets at this time is. Uh, Bram Stoker. Oh, wow. And she would become lifelong friends with Bram Stoker. Um, Bram Stoker at this time, he had already written Dracula, but it hadn't sort of risen to prominence quite yet. And he he, worked... he, he didn't say it properly. It hadn't <laughs> risen to prominence. <laughs> 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 I couldn't help myself. It just seemed like... <laughs> so well, that, that's, yeah. that's quite cool. That's, right, right. that's so, a heavy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So she's 20, whatever, 22, 24 years old. Her best friends apparently are one of the most famous actresses on the continent and who a man who is who has already written the work that will make him a you know a, like a all-time name. author yeah. everybody my you know my parents know who Bram Stoker is um so it's just interesting she managed to just kind of get herself in that place and there was a little bit of you know I think there was a little bit of silver spoon in the mouth at least culturally speaking but she also had the talent and the industry to back it up so I really wonder what her her accent sounded like do we have audio of her somewhere there's no No, audio or video of her that I could find yeah wow yeah yeah so so because you know uh, grew up in London Right. Uh, in a very posh part of London, then yeah. ends up in Jamaica, then in New right. York, and then right. back right. in London. I, was, I just I just wonder what she sounded like. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. spending those those years, 10 to 15, in Jamaica, and then also knowing the pigeon well enough to write a book in it, like she, right. some of that has to rub off a little bit, right? Sure. So, yeah, it would be interesting to know to know kind of what her style was, her, her, her accent. Um, so she's... You know, so we've kind of laid it out. Here's one thing before I before I want to I'm going to talk about uh, an important and the next sort of important phase of her life as she's getting more solid in the London art scene. I want to talk about um, her work ethic as described by her good friend Ellen Terry. So um, this is uh, in describing the busy part of the season. Um, <clears throat> Ellen Ellen Terry is impressed by Pamela's work ethic and states that, quote, she's extraordinarily industrious, industrious and everlastingly making and selling as fast as she makes. All right. So this is a woman who just can go home and, you know, with her imagination, with a few painting supplies, she can just make turn out a living. Right. I'm I'm in in, in awe of that to a certain extent. Um, So. So she's industrious. She's well-liked. You know, it's clear that she's really good at making friends. She starts having a weekly salon in her Chelsea studio that becomes sort of a fixture. You could almost think of it as like, it's not quite the Bloomsbury group or what was Virginia Woolf? She was in a sort of a Bloomsbury, right? Mm -hmm. It's not quite, that's probably the A class of Mm -hmm. this in the Mm -hmm. intellectual and artistic scene. And this is maybe like the second tier of that same kind of thing. Sure. She has these these weekly, she has these weekly salons. Oftentimes the weekly salons were, a big part of them would be she would, you know, turn the lights out or whatever, Uh, light a few (laughs) candles and she would sit on the floor and she would start telling everybody stories. She was apparently a capt- an absolutely captivating storyteller. So much so that one of her gigs, she would literally hire herself out to tell stories at parties. 
So you would, you know, you would, you would, you would write up Pamela Coleman Smith. Can you come to our party and we'll sit around and we'll, we'll drink and we'll hear we'll the folk tale from Jamaica. Yeah. And we got to bring this back. Yeah, right? We got to get cool? back to this. I mean, that is, that is <laughs> way too fun. These, that's these phones cool. and these screens, yeah. they, you know, they have their place, but man, yeah, you'd yeah. just be able to plink out a tune on the piano and right, everybody'd right, have right. a few drinks and you'd sing a tune and Pamela would show up and yeah, yeah, and uh, she shows up and she's she's mysterious, she's kind of ambiguous and she has maybe a, a slightly weird accent that you can't quite place and she's right. wearing beads and strange colors and you know she jingles she's a little bit when she walks. Tell you about the trickster spider <laughs> god <laughs> right. uh, creature. Yeah, right. so cool. I, you know, and and this this gets lost because we're so cynical now, but. Uh, astrology has room for this. Like a lot of this mm-hmm. stuff, the tarot, astrology, mm-hmm. these are just systems of, of storytelling. Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. And yeah. I mean, I knew a fellow uh, over here in Minneapolis who uh, I, I, you know, I fell out of touch with, uh, met him. Uh, this is, this is an aside, but it's worth oh, it. Met him on this, this famous beach over in um, uh, Minneapolis, uh, West of Minneapolis is called like hippie beach or whatever. And it's, okay. it was a crazy nude beach. Uh, and all the freaks and the geeks would show up there. And this was an older guy at the time. And I don't even know if he's still with us, but uh, he was an astrologer yeah. with a computer devoted to astrology. Oh, wow. and he would show up at the party and he would bring your chart and he would do this and that. And yeah. he would just captivate college age students sure. and everybody would gather around him and just sit and listen. And it was, it was better than putting Netflix on. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, that's the thing. I think that's the thing that can get lost in these. I mean, I, I am, um, I'm a somewhat of a tarot devotee, but like, if you, if you try to get too rational about this stuff, I think you lose a little bit of the magic, but you also just lose like the fun of it. Yeah. Right. Like, oh, if you just, oh, that's a bunch of hooey. Like, well, okay. Even if it is like, right. don't, you, don't you just want to like have a cool moment? Yeah, and the, the <laughs> same rationalists and materialists who say, oh, that's a bunch of hooey, then they yeah. go to their, their science conference and they right. all get right. completely wasted and right. uh, right. fooling around with each other. They, they all end yeah. up doing the same thing. Yeah, and they cite studies with no replication, no history of replication. <laughs> right, right. You know, Look like... up replication crisis, <laughs> yeah, exactly. kids. We're, uh, <laughs> things are not working out quite the, quite the way that we had hoped. Yeah, yeah for, for real. So, um, so, yeah, and this is a good time to kind of talk about that because as I real as I was reading this I realized that I'm going to give you the next chapter of why this is true but I realized that Pamela was sort of the perfect person to do the tarot right she's born in this sort of alternative um, religion that believes that people can have divine visions she goes to Jamaica and learns the folklore there. She learns the Irish folklore well enough to illustrate this book. She learns Shakespeare, which is a kind of English folklore, right? In a way. Well, he um, drew on a lot of folklore for sure, his work. Right. Sure, right. Yeah, yeah. So she's, she's steeped in folklore and mythology, which all plays on this very, very deep, like, you know, Campbellian union imagery, right? She's, in, she's fascinated in, with storytelling, um, and so, and she's, she's, you know, a top shelf illustrator. So she's, she's sort of building herself up unbeknownst to her to be the person to do this, I hmm. think. Right. Um, and the next stage is, is, is 
she gets really involved in um, the Irish Literary Society. She's not Irish, but she gets very involved in it. And she gets involved in a group called the Maskers. And I didn't know anything about the Maskers. And I kind of w- wish I'd have had some time. I'd have done a deeper dive just out of curiosity. This was a group that, among other things, would get together and they would chant W.B. Yeats's poetry. <laughs> whoa, whoa, doggy. <laughs> so it's got to be weird right he did win a nobel <laughs> prize and uh i, I use yeah. a, a yates at the beginning of one of my plays as a, yeah. as a poem uh, yeah. but i'd be lying if i said i was a hardcore yates person i i am i have to admit i am not you know i know a little bit about him um you know being an english major and an irish guy i know a little bit about him but like yeah i don't i never really dug that deep did, into him did yates uh support the the chanting maskers who uh yeah, rocked good, out to his stuff that, I mean, That's a good question. I mean, what you have to think like, okay, you'd so, almost almost be embarrassed by it. I think. right. That's what I was gonna say. Like, I, you know, you write and I write. If you imagine you found out there was a group of people who got around and like chanted your stuff, like I think it depends on the demographics of the people. Uh, <laughs> if I find out it's a bunch of uh, yeah, when I was, yeah, when you were uh, twenty five and single, <laughs> it's, yeah, a it's a bunch of women. Yeah, all right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, let's be real here. Cool. Yeah, yeah. It's the the Kautzman Society here. Right, right, right. It's like well, it's I think like, I'll uh, go down and I'll date to go meet with them. It's like. My Python and the Holy Grail, you come to the castle. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's going to end up being a bunch of Reddit neckbeards who think that I'm putting code into my plays. Right. Oh, man. So, 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 yeah. So, you know, she's involved in both of these groups. She apparently liked W.B. Yeats's folklore work more than his poetry. Um, But there there were a bunch of other people, uh, you know, involved in these groups. A guy named Walter uh, Crane, which I didn't know much about, um, but the uh, the poet and Irish nationalist. That was the second thing on his Wikipedia article. George Russell, Russell who is better known as just A period E period. Um, um, these people were theosophists. They were mm-hmm. in the Dublin the- arm of the Theosophy movement. Which, for people who don't know, this was a this was a Madame Blavatsky um, uh, spiritual with not a capital S because spiritualism is like, we're going to go have seances. Um, But yeah, this was a sort of a new religion that was sort of popping up. Madame Blavatsky might be a cool episode, you know? Oh yeah. That'd be down the line. She's, Mm -hmm. she's a pretty interesting lady and you know, people claim she was a fraud and then, you know, she also had some pretty profound things to say. So, so um, Pamela's in, in this, um, this whole sort of scene, she's clearly interested in it and they like her and she likes them. And, uh, in 1901, she joined something called the Isis Urania Temple of the Order of the Golden Dawn. Ah, so she she joins the Golden she Dawn. Joins the Golden Dawn. Oh, right. yeah. This the Golden oh. Dawn. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is this is where you get <laughs> okay. into the. This is where this Yates is why I said and, in the beginning, like mm-hmm. the the dark in this episode is literally the dark arts. Crowley yeah. was a member of the Golden Dawn, Crowley and then there was, was a, a famous. Uh, there was a split. falling out. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there were a bunch of there was a bunch of famous people, um, creatives and, and others. Wait, we I actually, I if I may, I actually mm-hmm. think he may have lampooned. Uh, her Coleman Smith Crowley in the oh, moon, he might have. the Moonchild book. I think he may have written oh, really? her up as yeah because he wrote this. He was a very cruel man. He was yes. very mean. Yes. And if he <laughs> if you belonged to a, a set that he had a falling out with, it wasn't enough just to 
forgive and forget, he would right. write you into a novel as a, as a character and <laughs> mock you horribly. Of course, he was he was the the real demon. Right, right, uh, yeah. right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah. yeah, that could be. I, yeah, I don't. I didn't come across that, but that could mm. totally be the case. He was a he. It was at least a member of the same order of the Golden Dawn uh, sect for a while as mm. Pamela Coleman Smith. So certainly they cross paths. Um, other members, we could literally just do an episode on on everybody that was in the Order of the Golden Dawn. <laughs> Arthur <sighs> Conan Doyle, yeah, Drom Stoker, of course, W. B. Yeats. Um, Sax Romer, who I didn't know of, but it was the guy who created the Fu Manchu character. And um, notably for the story of Pamela Coleman Smith, a man named Arthur Edward Waite, who is the yes. Waite in the Rider Waite tarot deck. Right. Okay. So I'm going to get into the tarot deck, thi- the tarot thing, um, but there's one sort of sidetrack that I want to take. So she, we just mentioned before, she's in, it, go ahead. It, may I? Yeah. This thing about the Golden Dawn, right? The, yeah. This is a system. It's a ceremonial magical order mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, drawing on, I presu- presume, what we would call the Western esoteric tradition Co- and Kabbalah. Correct. Yeah, Kabbalah, uh, um, um, her, the, the, the hermetic, hermetic texts that were right. extant at the time. Yeah. Um, there was a split eventually between the Yates crowd who mm-hmm. want, was more interested in the sort of occult magical practices, mm-hmm. the weight crowd who was a little bit, who had a little bit more of a Christian spin on things. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, these groups would just like fragment basically upon, or upon a lot of, a lot of big personalities right. attracted to this. Yes. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah. it's extremely high nerddom. It is in a, in a certain sense. It is. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. And they're yeah. playing dress up in yeah. various basements. Esoteric and, texts. Yeah. And like, a lot of and, posturing. And, yeah. And, yeah. The, and the thing is, it's it's it's. It, I totally agree with that. And then at the same time, I don't like to totally dismiss it because, like, I've read a bunch of the Hermetic oh, texts, yeah. and there's some cool, there's some interesting and enlightening things in there, right? So like, you understand why they gravitated to it, but it's, there's some of the personalities that are a little weird, right? It's like. It's just like anything. There's like status. There's like, oh, sure. you know, puffing up the chest. And mm-hmm. I read all of, you know, this yeah. guy read more ancient books than this guy. So now he's the big deal. And like, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of weirdness like that for sure. I love that stuff though. I, I, and I say nerds with, with respect. I think <laughs> yes. it's fun. I, yeah. I think I really actually believe we need to bring up, a, uh, bring back adults playing dress up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We used to have it. Fun. Even if it was just bowling league and you would have mm. your shirts together as a team, we need to bring mm-hmm. it back. There's something to that for sure, right? Yeah. And and I like even just the aesthetics of the occult stuff. You know, the dark and candles and, you know, weird symbols and sigils. and I like, I kind of like all that stuff. They can get real dorky real quick, but yeah. I don't know. I There's mean, always an element of maybe there is something behind that door that's worth looking into. What's yeah, behind that? Right, right. Yeah. For sure. For yeah. sure. Um, now, so Pamela was clearly interested in this world. She didn't get, um, there was like, and the other thing about these groups, they're always so hierarchical. Like she didn't get past like whatever, the second order of zealotry or whatever, you know. <laughs> was and, she part of like a woman's order inside the Golden no, Dawn? No, so the Golden Dawn was, was more, the okay. Golden Dawn was really co-ed. They didn't, okay. that was one thing about them is they, 
they didn't really they didn't make really any distinction. Well, that, that that's admirable. Yeah, yeah I, like I think that. so. Mm-hmm. I think so. Okay. But it's not right. clear like what they did. I mean, I could have done. I'm sure you could do some readings and find out like what did they do at their meetings and all mm-hmm. that. I assume that most like most anything like it starts out with a purpose and then it eventually just devolves into getting drunk and trying to get laid. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then Crowley made that his whole thing. Right, right, right. He just focused, he decided at some point, it was like, well, let's just get yeah, to the cut to the, cut chase, to the here. chase here. <laughs> we'll read a line of poetry and then we'll get it on. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I want to get to a couple other things. So 1901, she, she joins the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. She meets Arthur E. Waite. Tara's a couple of years down the road, but there's some stuff that's starting to go on in between. In between. Um, one is she's again she's really interested in doing stuff DIY small press hand colored whatever she puts out a thing uh, a thing called a broadsheet at first um, and then a green sheaf and it's kind of a cool idea it's like the original zine so like what you would get is you would get a subscription and then once a month or whatever you would get a one page um, object that would be like one two or three illustrations that she had done and hand colored and then there would be like little bits of poems and stories on there. She wrote a lot of them, but like other people will contribute to them as well. Like a little subscription service. Yeah. And it's kind of cool. I mean, join my sub stack. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Patreon.com slash art of dark pod. There you go. There There you go. Subscribe folks. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, so so she was doing that and in trying to make money. She was uh, W. B. Yeats would start to contribute to it at times. Um, I think broadsheet more than the green chief, um, and then uh, she was involved in with uh, W. B. Yeats's brother Jack Yeats in the green chief. But they would have all kinds of stuff, um, various you know all these people who came to her salon at her house and various other member, members of the Golden Dawn would contribute to these things. Um, she also would eventually turn into a actual excuse me, she would turn the Green Chief into an actual publishing house at some point. So uh, it didn't last for very long, but she put out a bunch of novels and, and books of poetry and things like that. Very, again, very interested in making a thing, you know, um, just writing the story wasn't quite enough for her. She, I, I want to like, make the object. Yeah. I want to embody it in yeah. the world. Yeah. yeah which, which I think is, which I think is kind of cool. Now there's another thing she starts doing around this time in this golden dawn time. And it, Kevin, do you know what synesthesia is? I do. Okay. What is yes. synesthesia? Well, that sentence makes me think of the color orange for some reason. No, <laughs> yes. synesthesia is uh, is a condition where uh, the senses become mixed. So if you hear a certain tone, uh, you might correspond with a color. You see you see the color in your mind's eye from the sound, and it's a it's a recognized almost like a medical condition right right yeah it's like a yeah. cross wiring of the senses yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah no absolutely now apparently um they didn't have this term when pamela coleman smith was alive but apparently she had a degree of synesthesia um now her thing we don't get much of her there's a little bit of her talking about it but um apparently how it worked for her was when she heard a piece of music she would get like a fully formed image of the music in her head and she would paint she started to paint these um they and they're some of her best work is these synesthesia drawings these paintings wow. to music i have um, to say given her background and how talented she is and how, this yeah. doesn't surprise me somehow yeah. clearly she was wired a little different yeah from she's sort of touched yeah normie. her brain doesn't quite work yeah, yeah. the way that everybody else is in a great way right sure yeah we're all clearly. sort of better off for it um so yeah so she so she you know she uh 
let me think. Uh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> this is another thing you talk about. We talk about all. I was talking about all the people that she's met. Um, this book just mention, mentions in passing that she was friends with Claude Debussy. How do you pronounce? Yeah. It? yeah Debussy. Debussy. Yeah. yeah. So apparently she was friends with Busey. friends with him, which of course that's amazing. And of course he did. He did the Rite of Spring, which mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. Uh, based on uh, folk had folkloric elements and very famously sure. caused a riot in Paris yes. uh, when it premiered. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So great. Yeah, so um, I'm going to read just a little bit about the um, about the synesthesia thing. So, Pamela's ability to visualize music she heard is one of the most important keys to her artistic ability. Is evidence that she had synesthesia. Okay, we already talked about that. Um, yeah, you know, we actually kind of already killed that. I want to find the spot where. Um, uh, okay, here's where uh, Debussy talks about her. Uh, he basically believed that her compositions made his dreams visible. So like he saw the paintings and was like, yes, that's what I was trying to do, which that is got to, that's the biggest, right? Like if you're a, you happen to be a synesthetic music painter, that's what you want. You want some other musical genius to come Pretty high praise. Yeah. Wow. That's exactly what I was, that's exactly what I was trying to do. Wow. She did know everybody. She was really rocking and rolling. (laughs) She was, right? Okay. So um, here is a a description of uh, by, so she would start doing these, 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 performances live so she would do a painting live with like a quartet or something right or a person playing the piano at the very least it was another thing you know she's selling herself out to play music at, uh, to tell stories at parties she's selling christmas card prints and she's doing these mystical synesthetic synesthetic um, music painting performances right just like I, in eight in 1905 like that yeah. had been the coolest thing happening basically. crowley would do this too not to continue to keep yeah, coming back sure. to crowley no, but i, I think know there's i know too much about him uh, yeah. for various reasons i just think he's fascinating <laughs> yeah. uh but he he would he did something something similar around this period or, or maybe a little uh, later might have been between the wars but where he would host these essentially these trippy freak out parties with light shows and all the rest and yeah. drugs oh, and course, we're talking yeah. about this is something that you would think about like san francisco in the mid 60s or the right, late 60s right. they were already doing they it in london doing it yeah 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 oh yeah no, they were partying they were they were they were you know they were reaching heights and it makes you wonder like the golden dawn were they imbibing something uh, you know right it, right what was, was this were, was this really uh, kind of uh, an early like a proto rave culture yeah. And they just trapped it all in all of this goofery. Yeah, yeah. The music, yeah. right, right. The music sounded a little different. But yeah, I mean, if yeah. you take a snapshot of Burning Man, there's like a. It doesn't look exactly the same, but it looks like people are doing the same thing to a certain mm. extent, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think mm-hmm. there's something to that. So um, I'm gonna read this little thing about um, <clears throat> from French uh, critic G. Jean Aubray, who apparently was a friend of Joseph Conrad. So she probably met Joseph Conrad too. Um, He's talking about Pamela's, uh, describing watching Pamela Coleman Smith do one of these synesthetic pieces. She, co- she comprehends music visually, whether a symphonic piece or a piano composition. For her, the musical impression is immediately transformed into a graphic image. I've seen her curled up in a corner at a concert with her sketchbook on her knees, a sepia brush in her hand, listening to the work following the rhythm and smiling working without haste as if she had the time if she as if she had the time to put down her impressions in a few seconds the time of 20 measures the scarred page caressed scratched 
shows varied sketches, some like one of the charming series of Schumann's Carnival, others in the style of Song of the Land by Severe, the Valley of Clocks by Ravel, the images or prints of Debussy, or the reminiscent of Dvorak's symphony from the New World, or Beethoven's symphonies and works by Bach, Scarlatti, Purcell, or Bird. Right, so she, she was clearly being sort of taken away by something yeah, in these experiences. Very sensitive gal. Yeah. So, mm. um, and this is from a 1908 article, and this is Pamela talking about it herself. And then we're going to get to the tarot stuff. There stretched far away are plains and mountains and the billowy sea. And as the music forms a net of sound, the people who dwell there enter the scene. Tall, slow-moving, stately queens with jeweled crowns and garments gay or sad who walk on mountaintops or stand beside the shore watching the water people. These water folks are passionless and, and sway or fall with little heat of time. They toss the spray and, bending down, dive headlong through the deep. Right, so that's just her, like, describing these images sort of entering her head as she listens to this music. So. Everything is so sensual and <laughs> draped with feeling and yes. high romance and everything. Yes. It really makes me uh, a little depressed about how banal and corporate and ground down everything mm. is in our environment and ugly and yeah uh, can you imagine uh, dropping uh, pamela coleman smith uh, into a, a strip mall in the american I, midwest I and think she telling her to yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> make do right just right. Oof. oh my gosh Ugh. yeah right just the the aesthetic bluntness of everything just the right. yeah yeah utilitarianism right. and this right. just uh right. are just gonna get on with it right. yeah no this is lush and mm-hmm. verdant mm-hmm. and every idea sparks another idea right. and what a joy to wake up in london in 1901 and know you have a party to go to later and right. your friends are going to be there and right. someone so will play the violin and you'll do a drawing in the corner and right it sounds yeah. awesome yeah. oh well, we gotta bring great. it back people <laughs> no Come i on. don't know how we do this but yes yeah. i agree yeah um so okay so 1909 rolls around and um oh one other thing uh <laughs> okay, so this is real quick about her storytelling. I kind of missed this in the order of things, but it's worth telling because it's written by J.M. Barry, who is the creator of, Perry, of Peter Pan. Okay, so he's talking about um, her ability to storytell, right? And this is a little bit of a diversion, but I don't want to miss it just because it's another famous person she knows who thought she was amazing um, from J.M. Barry. I know of no more delightful entertainment for children than yours. So quaint, so simple. And it is the prettiest of pictures, the children sitting agape around you. Right? So he's just like, I don't know. I'm just interested that all these people that she came into contact with, who historically we think of as as these these great talents, and they were, um, including her friend Ellen Terry, um, who said about Pamela Coleman Smith's storytelling, since hearing your stories, I have told no other. Right, all of these people are just enamored with her. It's just, it's, it's cool. Yeah, she <laughs> rolled a twenty on charisma. She did somehow. real yeah. charisma and uh, mm-hmm. a varied talent. Theatrical, mm-hmm. uh, clearly uh, an eye for design, drawing. Mm-hmm. Right, right. A bit of an autodidact. I mean, yeah. I read she went into Pratt when she was fifteen. Yes, yes. Incredible. Yeah, Incredible. yeah, yeah, yeah. She's a little, she's a prodigious. Prodigious, sure. Yeah, yeah, there it yeah, is. yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so, okay, so now I want to talk about the tarot stuff, and in, in, in w- w- this might take some time, but sadly, there's not a whole lot after the tarot. So, um, so 1909 rolls around, 
Arthur um, Edward Waite has um, decided that he wants to do a new tarot deck and that he knows just the right person for the job. So to give a little background of the tarot deck, um, and, you know, you know, I could nerd out about this forever. So I'm not going to try not to do that. But. On the After Dark episode, oh, which is available to Patreon subscribers, we will interrogate Brad Kelly's obsession <laughs> with the tarot further. Okay. Artofdarkpod.com okay. or right. patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. Yeah, get it. And, you know, I actually, I listened to back to those for the first time. And because uh, I, you know, I got on the Patreon. I got to support the show. It's my favorite podcast. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and they're good. They're fun. Yeah. yeah. yeah they're extra yeah. little episodes. If you can't get yeah. enough of this or if you just want to support the content we're making, get over there and uh, subscribe. Yeah. I think yeah. it starts at what, like three bucks a month? You, you uh, won't even, right. you won't yeah, miss you it. Even notice Trust it. me, yeah. you won't even notice it. Yeah. You got another thing to listen to and it's, it's, it is good. We do a good yeah. job. Nice. Thank you. So, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so, uh, so, so the tarot card deck for the people who, do, for people who don't know is very similar to your traditional poker deck. Um, there are four suits in the tarot. They are swords, cups, uh, pentacles, and wands or rods. Sometimes pentacles are called coins. Um, some people think, have claimed that the playing card deck came out of the tarot deck. Um, some people claim it's the other way around. The history, the provable history indicates that it was first probably a card game that was later used for divination. What separates it most strongly organizationally from a poker card deck is the fact that in addition to those um, suited cards, there are 22 of what are called the major arcana. And these are cards like that you've, even if you know almost nothing about the tarot, you've probably heard. There's a card called the hanged man, and there's a card called uh, death and the devil and the fool and the hermit, right? Everybody everybody's sort of somewhat familiar with these. Um, yeah, it appears in pop culture. Oh, even yeah. if you've never seen a deck in person, you know what it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay, so these cards, they stretch back to the first description of them. Uh, this first, I should say, the first description of a playing card deck that could have some resemblances to the tarot card deck is from 1377 by a monk in Switzerland. Um, uh and then later in 1400 or so, you start getting documentation within the church talking about cards um, as in terms of gambling. We have no mention of divination whatsoever. Um, by, but by 1480, um, we've got Franciscan friars talking about the tarot trumps as uh, the rungs of a ladder which lead to the depths of hell, right? So sometime between 1377 and 1480, somebody has started to use these for things other than just playing games. Um, by about 1500, we have the Marseille deck of France, which was basically the equivalent of the Rider-Waite-Smith deck until the Rider-Waite-Smith deck was invented. Um, it was a sort of a standard deck that was used all over the place. And then in top, on top of that, you would have commissioned customized deck for, decks for families. The first, the earliest complete deck is something known as the Visconti Sforza deck, which was basically uh, a wealthy family in Europe had uh, commissioned these from an artist and it includes most of the familiar trumps that you see now. Um, pretty much everything in the genealogy, pretty much all of the decks sort of come after that. Um, so there are, is some, you know, there, 
just like anything, there are things that are provable and and that scholarship has determined, and then there are things that are not. So there's a lot of people like Manley P. Hall and Arthur E. Waite who claim that the tarot as currently envisioned in the, say, the Rider-Waite deck, Rider-Waite-Smith deck, um, that this is wisdom that goes all the way back to Egypt. Now, most likely... I mean, you can borrow Egyptian elements and put them at any time you want as you're changing decks over time. Most likely this was just like a callback to like, at the time, Egypt was this like mysterious place where deep ancient wisdom was held. And there's, you know, there's a little bit of truth to that. It's this crazily sophisticated culture that's almost like, it's so sophisticated for its time. It's almost like an anachronism, right? So you can see how it gets this sort of magical power, right? Um, so Waite being a member of the, you know, uh, the, the, the Order of the Golden Dawn, he wanted his own deck for divinatory practices. This is basically, you know, the simple way to say it is telling the future, but it's, uh, the tarot is way more complicated about that than that. We can talk more about that in the After Dark episode. Um, but he knew he needed somebody to paint these cards because Arthur E. Waite was not a visual artist, um, he's not even a particularly good writer. I've read some of his writing. So he needed some help and he knew the perfect person to do it. And I'm going to read you um, a little bit from him. We'll find out what he thought about Pamela Coleman Smith, why he picked her to paint these cards, not only paint the major trumps, uh, the major arcana, which had been painted for, for centuries at this point, but she would be one of the first people to paint the minor arcana that is having a specific illustration for all 78 cards of the entire deck, which um, sort of hadn't been done yet. And we'll talk about that in a second. So this is from Arthur E. Waite. I'm talking about Pamela. Now, in those days, there was a most imaginative and abnormally psychic artist named Pamela Coleman Smith, who had drifted into the golden dawn and loved the ceremonies as transformed by myself. <clears throat> as trans, I don't even know what that means there. Anyway, without pretending or indeed attempting to understand their subsurface consequence, right? She wasn't, he, to him, she wasn't trying to understand what was going on. She it was, was a good show. It. She enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Good for her. That's yeah. the way to be. Yeah, agreed. It seemed to some of us in the circle that there was a dra draftswoman among us who, under proper guidance, could produce a tarot with an appeal in the world of art and a suggestion of significance behind the symbols, which would put on which would put on them another construction than had ever been dreamed by those who, though many generations through many generations, had produced and used them for mere divinatory purposes. My province was to see that that the designs, especially those of the important Trump major, kept that in the hidden kept that in the hiddenness which belonged to certain greater mysteries in the past. He's got a lot of capitalized words in here, by the way, that I'm not, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mystery yeah, the more woo and uh, mm. yeah, flim flam <laughs> that you can throw into it, <laughs> yes. the more yes. you can suggest there's something behind the next door. You got to keep coming to the right. meetings. You got to keep right. subscribing and by exactly. the way, buy my book. Right, yeah. right. Right. Nothing like what we have going on today. No, no, I don't see any of that happening anywhere today. <laughs> Patreon. Patreon.com. That's, that's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. um, I am not, of course, intimidate, intimating that the Golden Dawn had at that time any deep understanding by inheritance of tarot cards. But if I may so say, it was getting to know under my auspices that their symbols, or some at least among them, were gates which opened on realms of vision beyond occult dreams. I sought to it, therefore, that Pamela Coleman Smith should not be picking up casually any floating images from my own or another mind. 
mind. She had to be spoon-fed carefully over the priestess card, over that which is called the fool, and over the hanged man. So he claims that he's just like, he's like giving her very carefully these, like, this is exactly right. how it's got to be. I love um, it. But, I love it. They call yeah. her psychic because what right. what is she? She can hear, she can see the music that you're right. playing and yeah. you say says, yes, this is what this I'm is doing. Yes, she is. is psychic. Basically. Is psychic. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. For I have sure. a name for the this episode. I think it's going to be Pamela Coleman Smith's paywall. <laughs> I like that. Is that all right? Okay. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, <laughs> That's good. Okay. So, so she, she, so a, a Wade enlists her to do these tarot card illustrations, right? And, and he's apparently, he claims he's spoon feeding her ideas, though, though later scholars would dispute this and claim that she was a lot more responsible for the illustrations than, than, than um, she, he really gave her credit for. There was, of course, other decks that were around, the Marseille deck in particular, and she likely took, um, she likely took inspiration from another old deck called the Solabusca. The Solabusca deck also had minor arcana um, illustrations but it was a very differently organized deck than 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 tip, uh, typical. Like if somebody has used the Rider Waite Smith, they're gonna pull and they pull out the Solabuska. It's not gonna make all that much sense to them. It's a, it's a it's a much different kind of thing. So anyway, that card deck was on display at the British Museum at the time. So she mo she most likely she most likely saw, saw that. Another thing that was interesting about this was there's 78 full color illustrations and they're fairly detailed. Um, she did this in approximately three months. She did this entire deck, which is, I think is pretty impressive, honestly. I mean, I mean that's amazing. About, she must have been doing, I can't do the math in this out of my head, yeah. but I mean, that's almost one a day, right? It's almost one a day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty, that's pretty. And, you know, it's not just coming up with whatever, you know, comes to mind. It's like a carefully composed, thought out. There's symbols that you need to hit. There's symbols you might want to hit. You're, how are you going to frame all of this? What call, you know, there's, there's some thought that's going into it. And so then still impressive. keep the feeling of improvisation about yeah. it. They have yeah. that kind of rough quality that is oh, yeah, they do. Yeah. admirable. You enjoy, yeah. there's something yeah. childish about them in a, in a good way, in the right. best way possible. Right. Not right. childish, no, maybe naive or. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with that. They're char they're kind of charming mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. They feel like you've opened like a children's a well drawn children's book from like nineteen hundred. It's kind of mm -hmm. how they feel a little mm -hmm. bit. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So she cranks that out. Now, when when they finish it, nobody really cared. <laughs> okay, so they put this thing out. Whatever the Golden Dawn people are into it. Um, uh, they did, I think, a print run of like five hundred. Um, copies of of the the deck, um, but yeah, nobody really cared. It wasn't until 1960 when an author named Eden Gray published a book called Tarot Revealed that led to this sort of mid-century tarot renaissance. Um, and uh, Stuart Kaplan, who's actually the guy who who wrote much of and 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 uh, put together much of this this book that I've been referencing, which again is Pamela Coleman Smith, The Untold Story. It's a beautiful book. It's kind of pricey, but it's like a nice coffee table book, actually. Um, lots of great illustrations. Um, 
he acquired the rights to publish the deck in the U.S. under U.S. game systems, and still, that's still if you buy it, printing money, money, making oh, yeah, bank. Yeah yeah. yeah, 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 for that's sure. That's a good investment. That probably returned. Uh, yeah, that's some I, Dogecoin money right I there. I bet he did okay. Yeah, it was yeah, a good move. Yeah. It was a good move. So then you just hire some witches in California to write about right. how great the deck is. I mean, <laughs> right, come on, let's right, go. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he apparently, in, in in addition to that, he apparently did a lot of work. He's done a lot of work over the years. To, like he released the um, the Pamela Coleman Smith like commemorative edition in 2009, which is like includes a bunch of her other art, and he's done some other things to sort of keep her legacy alive. Which okay, you know, respect which that. That's cool. very good. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think cool. he was. I think yeah. I'm sure he like anybody. He wanted to make a living, but I think he also was a was a sort of a. A fan and a, yeah, don't uh, hex me. I got enough yeah. hexes and <laughs> right. craziness in my and life. And he's still alive, so we got okay. Our, all we gotta, right, don't yeah, okay. got to be yeah. up. There, respect, though, right? I respect that. That's good. Yeah. Um. So okay. So tarot comes out. Doesn't seem to be a big deal. Like little did she know how huge it would end up being in the sort of the dark arts world, right? And what she's clearly tapped into. You know, it's like anything. It's like. Okay, maybe she just made up all these things, right? Assuming she just made them up off the top of her head. The fact that so many people get so much out of them means there's something there, right? You're like, totally right about what you said in assessing her as being uniquely poised to tap into some sort of uh, right. Akashic uh, record, some sort of occult psychic energy that would yeah. translate to the masses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was weirdly at this. And she, again, she didn't know she was doing it, but she was sort of like getting positioned or positioning herself to like be there at the right time at the right place. She never would have done a tarot deck if Arthur E. Waite hadn't like tapped her on the shoulder. Probably. I doubt it. Right. Sure. It was just yeah. another job, but it sounds like she, she put a lot into it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, so that comes out and, and, and uh, that's sort of, the highlight of her career. I mean, it would be the highlight of anybody's career, even if they didn't know it. Right. That's the, that's the, that's one of the downsides of being an artist. Sometimes you, uh, sometimes you didn't even realize that you hit your peak because nobody else seems to notice for a while. Oh <laughs> so. yeah. That's uh Tennessee Williams. <laughs> yes. If you want to go back and listen to that episode. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so what is she doing after, after tarot? So 1909, remember 1909, she puts this out. She's about 20, she's in her early thirties. Um, she starts to get involved in the suffrage movement. Um, she contributes a lot of art and, um, organizational efforts to, um, something called the suffrage atelier. 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 Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it basically means a suffrage workshop. An atelier okay. is a, a French workshop for artists. Okay. It's an atelier. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've seen this one of these words that I've read many times. And, and yeah. you go to pronounce it, you're like, well, actually, I don't uh, know. Yeah. Um, okay. So she, she contributes a bunch to that. Um, and, and that's a movement that's, you know, ongoing in England at that time. Um, she contributes arts art for another book by Bram Stoker, which is a great title, but is not very famous, called Layer of the White Worm, which I kind of quite like. She provided illustrations for a booklet written by uh, Ellen Terry about various productions of the Russian ballet. Uh, she creates costumes for a musical. Uh, she does a bunch of these things. She does a bunch of uh, World War One starts to happen. She does a bunch of posters and you know basically propaganda, I guess, for various efforts with you know efforts within the war, the Polish Relief Fund, and these sorts of things. Um, and uh, she does in 1911. She converts to Catholicism. The one true religion, <laughs> I would say as we know, on Art of Darkness. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah. This is literally like what, Good. like the third Catholic convert, at least. A lot of people just end up to there, Catholicism huh? at yeah. some point. Yeah. yeah, and you could see maybe the the mystic side could appeal. The sure. the Swedenborgian thing has the yeah. mysticism, but yes. it's couched in a kind of yeah. Protestant uh, veneer. Catholicism mm-hmm. also uh, in the UK would have had a bit of a little bit of a forbidden. Oh, right. Quality, a little bit of an edge. Uh, If you're a counterculture, you're sort of out of the culture. Then it also has, in terms of women, it has the Marian element, which I think would potentially appeal. For sure, Uh, for sure. But it's also the one true revealed religion. Right. Right, that right. it's the only I'm completely joking i just went to mass for the first time in years a couple of weeks so ago so you're I'm, like I'm really being dedicated yeah, totally trad calf after two weeks we just put in our our forms you know we got to get our son baptized yeah. okay cool you'll be hearing yeah. from my priest soon okay yeah yeah um so uh, it's just gonna be brad kelly's gonna start getting phone calls from jesuits constantly <laughs> we're concerned about hey. the soul of your podcasting co-host Hey, I'd love to talk to a Jesuit. If you know, if you are a Jesuit listening to our podcast, yeah. DM me. Sure. Um, I'd love to talk to a Jesuit. At Brad Kelly, just like yeah, it sounds. That's me. Um, one, one E. <laughs> so I did wonder one thing, because I think Yates, so she converts to Catholicism. She'd been friends with Yates. They'd had a little bit of a falling out when he went in one direction in the Golden Dawn. She went in the other. She followed the weight line and he followed the occult line. Mm. And then he's a Protestant. So... At that time, you know, you got an Irish Protestant guy. She becomes a Catholic. I kind of doubt that they were on speaking terms after hmm. a while, but I don't who know. knows? Yeah. This was one thing that was a little tricky about doing this episode. This biography was so focused on her work that you got, you didn't get as much of an idea of like what she was like as a person to person kind of human being, you know, it's, it's a little tricky. Um, yeah, and there's not really- a lot of try to paint in the lines based on her public persona or what we're catching but it's it is hard to know yeah this is what i was kind of trying to do i'm kind of trying to put these facets of her out there and hopefully we can suspend an idea of a person in the middle of it if that makes sense just because yeah there is there's very little of her own writing though i'm going to read a little piece of her writing at the end um um so 1911, she converts to Catholicism. World War I is starting to ramp up in the years following. And then there's this moment that I thought was really significant. She's been holding these salons for years, right? All through this, she's holding these weekly salons. The, all these people are coming over. She's telling stories. They're hanging out. They're doing this. They're doing that. And she had a guest book this whole time that people would sign and write little messages in. In 1914, she gives this guest book away and says, uh, says quote, she, that she didn't care for people anymore. So something wow. goes on 1914, right? I think the war affected a lot of, that war was yeah. so ugly and yes. apocalyptic and yeah. so many people died. Yes. Uh, I just think that it affected people who lived through that. Right, no, yeah. I, totally, I totally agree. So, so after, um, after um, World War II, or sorry, World War I, she kind of starts running out of money. That early productive phase of huge reception and, and, and money and productivity sort of winds down. Um, by 1927, she is, uh, well, let me back up for a second. After World War I, her uncle leaves her some money and she buys, um, she buys a couple acres that include a house, a couple buildings, and a Roman Catholic chapel um, in an excuse me, in an area of England called the Lizard. The Lizard 
What? Is, I don't know why I, it's called the lizard. I, I got to look out. it up. Yeah. The lizard is as south. The, you can't get further south and still be and still be in England than the lizard. Yes. Okay. I know. Yeah. I see. It's it's yeah. just east of Plymouth, mm-hmm. and yeah, it is right on the ocean. Mm-hmm. Wow, the lizard. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So she, she yeah she's this, out there. Yeah, she buys this place out there. Um, the church is called Our Lady of the Lizard. <laughs> which I think is just great. Wow. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> and um, one thing she does during this period to kind of keep some money coming in, not only does the church have services, I don't know that she made any money from that, but it, she also turned it into sort of a resort for Catholic priests. Hmm. So you're a Catholic priest and you're going on, you know, a couple, you're, you're having your yearly vacation or whatever. Maybe you go out to Our Lady of the Lizard and Pamela Coleman Smith reads your tarot cards. I don't, I don't know. Um, uh, so, 19, but even though she's got this going on, by 1927, she is out of money. Um, she's living with Nora Lake, who I mentioned kind of at the beginning. I couldn't get a lot of details on Nora Lake, but she's been living with this, this woman for years. She's got kind of projects here and there, but she's writing letters to friends saying, like, do you know anybody who wants to buy some drawings? Do you know mm-hmm. anybody who wants to buy some prints? I've got a whole bunch yeah. of stuff here. Like, you know, those kinds of conversations, which are sort of heartbreaking. You know, it's tough when you leave the big city too, and this is pre-internet, and yep. obviously way yep. pre-internet. You're, right. what are you going to do? Right. We're just now going through a period where creative people are beginning to go. Wait a minute, I don't have to pay three thousand dollars for no, a bedroom right. in London or New York. I can go somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. no, you're absolutely, yeah. you're absolutely right. Um, 1939, she moves to ex- first to Exeter with Nora. Um, cause Nora has some family out there. And then she, a little later, she moves to a place called Bude near the West coast of England. So she's staying to, sort of down in that North that, sorry, that Southwestern, um, part of England, decently away from, from London and all of that. Um, and in 1951, uh, she passes on, she leaves her estate to Nora Lake, uh, except that she owes so much money. There's nothing left to leave. And so Nora Lake gets nothing. Um, I'm going to read a little paragraph. Well, and that, that, is, that is tragic for someone this talented who created the, the go-to tarot deck. Yeah. That is, uh, and she I mean, dies the, destitute and never married. No, uh, she had, no children. Yeah. Know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me read a little paragraph here. I'm going to really read a little paragraph and then I'm going to read something maybe that will lift the spirits a little bit from Pamela herself. So, um, uh, As Pamela lacked the financial means necessary at the time of her death to pay for a burial plot and headstone at the closest Catholic cemetery in Launceton, I think, it's highly probable that she was buried in an unmarked grave in St. St. Michael's Cemetery, the Bude Anglican Parish Church. However, all the relevant burial records from this period were destroyed in a fire, making, making it impossible to determine Pamela's final resting place. So I don't even know where she ended up. That this is one of those. This is tragic. <laughs> that is really tragic. Is. She she's somebody who, gosh, wow. So I yeah. mean, clearly, really talented. A, yeah. Probably a genius of some sort. Clearly, yeah. kind of this and, like primordial, like yeah, yeah, creative, raw, creative right. energy. Right. And, right. Uh, this is what I think when somebody called her like a primitive. There were there were multiple people who referred to her as like a creature. Huh. And, and in, in yeah. my first read, I was like, well, that seems pretty racist. Racist and, and insulting. And then as I read yeah. on, I think what they were saying is like, 
not necessarily racist, but like wasn't she's a pejorative. Like not really a human being. She's tapping into actually. something that's yeah, yeah, extra yeah. human. Yeah, interesting. We would have yeah. burned her at the stake a couple hundred years right. ago. Right, right, like right. yeah. And even, but even in this this new milieu, she still ends up penniless and and yeah. in an unmarked grave. Right. So oh. big witchy energy. Right. Yeah. For sure. In a good way. Yeah, for sure. So I'm going to read a quick thing here and then we can kind of close. Um, so this is from a piece that she wrote called um, Should the Art Student Think, which was uh, in a in a uh, issue of the a magazine called The Craftsman. I think this was around shortly before Tarot Time. So this has been like 1905 to 1910, somewhere in there. And it's quite a long essay and it's pretty good and it's kind of fiery and energetic and, and actually for for somebody who you know is mostly known as a painter it's very sharp and very well thought through i think but i'm just going to read up parts uh, read a part of it or two um okay this is this is just an excerpt from somewhere in the middle talking again the question is should the art student think think good thoughts of beautiful things colors sounds places not mean thoughts when you see a lot of dirty people in a crowd do not remember only the dirt but the great spirit that is in them, it, that is in them all, and the power that they represent. For through ugliness is beauty sometimes found. Lately I have seen a play, ugly, passionate, realistic, brutal. All through that play I felt that ugly things may be true to nature, but it is surely through the evil that we realize good. The far-off scent of morning air, the blue mountains, the sunshine, the flowers of a country I once lived in seemed to rise before me, and there on the stage was a woman sitting on a chair, her body stiff, her eyes rolling, a wonderfully realistic picture of a fit. Okay, moving on to another part. Lift up your ideals, you weaklings. Again, she's talking to art students, right? <laughs> Lift up your ideals, you weaklings, and force a way out of that thunderous clamor of the steam press, the hurrying herd of blind humanity, noise, dust, strife, seething toil. There is power. The imprisoned titans underneath the soil, grinding, writhing, take your strength from them. Throw aside your petty drawing room point of view. I do not want to see riotous, clumsy ugliness suddenly spring up, but a fine, noble power shining through your work. The illustrations that I see in the magazines by the younger people are all dignified and well, carefully and conscientiously drawn, but their appalling clumsiness is quite beyond me, their lack of charm and grace. I do not be mean by charm prettiness, but an appreciation of beauty. Ugliness is beauty, but with a difference, a nobleness that speaks through all the hard crust of convention. I've heard it said that half the world has nothing to say. Perhaps the other half has, but is afraid to speak. Banish fear, brace your courage, place your ideal high up with the sun, away from the dirt and squalor and ugliness around you, and let that, let that power that makes the roar of the higher power presses enter into your work, energy, courage, life, love, use your wits, use your eyes. Perhaps you use your physical eyes too much and only see the mask. Find eyes within, look for the door into the unknown country. Wow, all so, right. So yeah, that one actually, like I was reading that and I got all like, when I read it first and even I now I got it. all like, whew, look yeah. for the door into the unknown country. I think I'm going to yeah. change the title as fun as uh, Pamela Coleman Smith's paywall would have been. I think it's yeah. got to be Pamela Coleman Smith's eyes within. Okay. I like that. That's yeah. much more earnest. And, and yes. I've certainly been blown away by her quality of character and the tragedy of her yeah. dying in such a way and being penniless and uh, 
all of it, you just think somewhere along the line, she must have, it sounds like her spirit got broken somewhat, possibly by the first war. I think, th- I think it was, and again, the, the, bio- the biographical detail was really good about, mm-hmm. you know, where she had published when and who she knew, but like there was, it felt like there was a little piece in there missing and something Something and then maybe it was World War One, you know. She's a sensitive well, person, and I think we can speculate too that this is an American woman mm-hmm. uh, who spent a lot of time in England, yeah. but wasn't really English in the in that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was a lesbian? Mm-hmm. So there are <laughs> there are social consequences to that, yeah, and. And then yeah, becomes they a Catholic, up which which would have made her an outsider right. there as well. So right. she was an outsider. Yeah, uh, and it gets yeah. it gets um, you know, when you're going alone and doing your own thing, and your own thing is such a strident, independent sort of streak, and it's cool when everybody else thinks it's cool, but you know, you keep going, and I'm not saying to not do this but there is a there is a there's a thread there where you keep going it starts it can start to get kind of lonely eventually i would venture too that after the war the that romantic spirit the kibosh got put on that yeah i think a little bit and it it took an even darker turn i think Mm -hmm. i i don't know i'm not a scholar of it but i would guess that that was an epochal moment yeah the whole culture yeah. changed the yeah. whole mood of the world changed yeah, yeah. well and in, in, in sort of playing on what we were talking about at first i mean if if this spiritualism and arts and crafts and the kinds of things that pamela coleman smith and her friends were doing were a sort of a pushback against like let's just call it the industrial revolution though there are more forces than that if it was a pushback against that world war one was like oh but the industrial revolution wins yeah you know and like, worse it's fire and gas there really and is hell on trench earth. right yeah right yeah hundreds yeah. of thousands of people are going to die uh, over an inch of earth right it's tragic. Uh, yeah so, and all your dreams are are just yeah. dust yeah well wow art of darkness.com art of <laughs> living up to our promise com, rather <laughs> art of darkpod.com I, I got the yeah. domain wrong you knocked Uh-oh. my wheels off there yeah. Artofdarkpod.com. Um, we got to ask the the question. What do you think Pamela is doing now? If she's alive now, Brad, what do you think? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and you know, it it always is. But you know, I think about her now, and she's such a crazy multimedia artist. Like, I have to imagine she would have gotten into like video or something. You know what I mean? Like yeah. production in some some capacity. Done like a music video for David Bowie. <laughs> right, right. Like I could see her moving into that. And I didn't mention she did she did get interested in photography a little bit. She didn't do a whole lot with it, but she was she was interested in it. So um yeah I think she could she have been a creative be... director. She could have been a theater person sure. of some stature. Right. A lot of different things she could have done. Yeah. She strikes yeah. me as somebody who probably would have ended up working for herself in one I think capacity. So, ultimately. Yeah. She I strikes d- me as if I may, uh, yeah. more, a bit more of an Instagram person than a Twitter person. Probably. Maybe. Yes, yeah. I think that's probably true. Yeah. yeah, I think I don't know and I don't know, but I don't think she would have written a novel a play like it would have been this diffuse nebulous thing of many 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 projects occurring sort of all all you know yeah isn't a lot irons a lot of fire so uh well that was very cool and i appreciate that walkthrough i did not know this about her every time i see a rider weight smith 
tarot yes. deck. I will throw give that sm- right. throw some respect on that name. Yeah, she's the yeah. most important person in the right. whole. Right. Well, how typical there. is that? That it, it, it has the two dudes' names. Right. Right. Uh, or was writer was, was just the, writer was just the yeah. He was just the publisher. He was just the guy who agreed to pay to print it. That's like, so. That's so cliche. That's so yeah. uh, typical. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, very cool, and uh, I appreciate it. I yeah. think that the darkness here is her touching on the dark arts, but also how talented she was, and then yeah. to see that get squandered mm. in her later life and to go Oof. away and to be yeah. lost yeah. is, is uh, pretty tragic. So for sure. For uh, sure. We're going to talk for another 20 or 30 minutes on the Patreon-only episode. It's going to be a good one. We're going to talk. I want to pick your brain about the tarot. Yeah, let's and, talk about uh, that for a bit. That'll be fun. That was great, Brad. I really I really enjoyed that. I had no idea. And yeah, what an there amazing was, woman. And I, Yeah. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what I was getting into either, honestly. I, I, this is probably the person starting out I knew the least about of the people that I've done so far. So it was all kind of new to me and, 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 and really cool. So, well, I'm getting ready to do uh, my next episode. I think I'm going to do it on Marlon Brando nice. to follow on the, uh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. Tennessee Williams nice. business. I'm not a hundred percent, but I think that'll be a fun one. That would be a uh, good you have one any ideas sure. what you're going to do? Oh, I don't know. It's either Zora Neil, uh, uh, author of Eyes Were Watching God. Now I'm blanking. I'm, I've used all my brain power. I can't remember if it's Hurston or Huston. I think Houston, it's Hurston. Right? I think Houston? it's Hurston. I think okay. it's Zora Neil Hurston. Yeah. Okay. Which yeah, that's right. a little Well, that's why we do an episode so you get it right. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Or I may do an episode on Johnny Cash. So it's one of those two. Dude, oh man. Well, we'll get to all of it on uh, yeah. on Art of Darkness. You got a wedding coming up too. I so you, yeah, we, we might have a little gotta, uh, yeah. interruption of services, but uh, we'll I got to take right a little road it. trip. I got to go out and go out and visit and uh, yeah, it's gonna be show, good. show face. I got to see yeah, what I can do to Yeah, it'll be fun. Going to talk you out of it. <laughs> <laughs> all right brad i'll I see mean, you on the uh, after dark episode all righty hi buddy Thanks.